Hi, friends. This is Will Parker. Have you ever received a gift that is so valuable you wanted to share the joy of it with others? That's how I feel every time I learn something new from spending time with educators like the guests on this program and with educators like you. If today's episode gives you new ideas or inspiration, would you share the joy by rating this show on whatever podcast app you may be using? Or better yet, would you share this episode with a friend? I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and I just want to say thank you in advance for doing what matters. Principal Matters Podcast, episode 327. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about candid conversations about education with my special guest, Dr. Eric H. Tornfeld. Dr. Eric H. Tornfeld is assistant principal at Sedgefield Middle School in Charlotte, North Carolina. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts degree in political science from Furman University in 2003 and began his teaching career in the fall of 2004 at Sun Valley High School in Union County, North Carolina, teaching social studies and coaching men's varsity golf. From 2007 to 2013, he served on the inaugural faculty of Mallard Creek High School, where he also participated in their literacy design collaborative team. And in 2012, he was honored as Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools Teacher of the Year. Dr. Tornfelt was named assistant principal at the nationally recognized Piedmont Middle School in 2013. He joined the administrative team at Geringer High School in 2015 as part of the Beacon School Turnaround Initiative. And in 2018, he became assistant principal at Sedgefield Middle School in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he currently serves. During his time at Sedgefield, he has supported the transition of major student reassignment plans at the school, and his leadership experiences have also included fostering exceptional IB learning experiences for students, participating in grant programs with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and co-leading strategic task force initiatives. He has completed his Master's of Arts in Teaching from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and his Doctorate of Education from Wingate University. And he has a dissertation titled A Case Study Analysis of Faith-Based Partnerships in Middle School. He's also the author of the book, The Crumbling Schoolhouse, A Candid View of American Education, which is available on Amazon. Dr. Eric Tornfelt, welcome to this Principal Matters podcast. You are also a listener of this podcast, so feel free to fill in the gaps through that intro and tell listeners something else they may be surprised to know about you. Well, uh, Will, first of all, I just want to say thank you. And I think uh, Dr. Luke Croy on your previous podcast said a similar thing when he said it to be a part of this podcast, something I've been listening to for years. Uh, it's it's pretty uh, special. It's uh, for us in the in the school leadership world. It, it means a lot. So thank you again for having me. When I think about kind of filling in the gaps and things that people don't know about me, um, a little known fact is that I was actually born in Egbe, Nigeria, in West Africa, which nobody in a million years would uh, guess that. But my parents were actually missionaries there for two years. And so, uh, you know, I, I use that to kind of tell my 
students and my staff that, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. And um, that experience, I was only six months old when we moved back to the United States, but um, that's a big part of kind of who I am and and, and um, kind of where I come from. And my parents like to tell some of those stories a little bit. Um, you know, another gap that I'd like to fill in is when I think about why I do what I do, um, I've taken a lot of time over the years to reflect on my own experience um, as a student and um, why I am involved in education. And uh, I often think back to when I was in seventh grade, I had a assistant principal who um, came, I remember I broke my arm one night in a basketball game. And the next day he came to school and he came to me and he said, Hey, Eric, uh, how you doing? I heard about your arm last night. And I said, okay, well, I, I don't really even know who you are, but you know, my name. And, uh, we had a very brief exchange in that, that few minutes. Um, but that brief exchange left a very lasting impression on me. Um, because here was somebody who, had a lot going on. He cared. He cared to know my name. He cared to know my situation. Um, and uh, that man, Mr. Dayton, who I will always remember, and I mentioned him in my book, and we'll talk about my book here in a little bit, um, left a lasting impression on me. And that's something that I desire to do as uh, in my current role or in any role is um, to care deeply for kids and to know them um, and Will, I have three core values that I live by in my work, um, and I've tried to use these in everything I do, and those three core values are to dignify all stakeholders, whether that's students, parents, teachers, uh, support staff, um, to use and to, to really respect them and to know that folks are coming from all different walks of life and um, have all different sorts of views on the world. And um, it's important that we respect and we treat fairly and we dignify everyone. Um, my second core value is to use truth to lead. Um, oftentimes we are dealt, we have to deal with situations and solve problems that are not easily solved. And so what I have found is that if you identify what is true about situations, whether that's a conflict between students or staff, or um, what is true about a logistical situation, uh, you can use that to make the best decision um, in your school leadership. And then the last core value that I have is um, that teaching is art, that we really have to remember that when teachers have it all going uh, in, a, in a really neat way in their classroom and they're managing their kids and they're bringing forth the content and they're using the curriculum well that truly is like a, an orchestra that's a that's an, a piece of artwork that we're seeing and so in all things that I want to do as an instructional leader uh wherever I am I want to make sure that we emphasize that that teaching really is uh, a true work of art and so um, but in, in all of those experiences that I've had, I've tried to maintain those core values and, um, and, and to really make sure that that's a big part of, of who I am and what I do. So thank you again, though, Will, for, for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, Eric, what a great place to start. And I just, you know me, I need to reflect on some of those things. First of all, just for Principal Matters listeners, for some context, you know, Eric and I have 
collaborated and communicated as a longtime listener to Principal Matters. And I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Tornfelt and wanted to bring him to the show just because, first of all, it's such a pleasure for me to recognize with whom I've been collaborating for a long, long time. And so, Eric, you've listened to the show um, faithfully for a very long time. And so I'm so grateful for that. But then also when I get on the other side of people that listen to the show and realize how much I can learn from your experiences, it's so inspiring. And I want to come back to that story you told about Mr. Dayton, because, you know, I'm going to guess right now that there are listeners who walk through their school every single day and have maybe forgotten the power of a very small conversation on the life of a child or the life of a student. And I've said this in my um, presentations a lot, and I've said this in my third book, Pause, Breathe, Flourish, which is the importance of two truths. One is you're not as important as you think you are. Uh, your school someday is going to exist without you. And so stop you know, taking yourself so seriously all the time and, and walk in humility. But then the flip side of that same statement is another truth, which is you are more important than you think you are because those Mm -hmm. small little things that you do every single day, the way that you choose to influence a moment, the person who you choose to say that friendly thing to or not is making a difference in all those small ways every single day. And so what a great reminder to be intentional, even in the small moments, because you never know the effect they're going to have on a child too. And I love your core values, dignify all stakeholders, use truth to lead and teaching is an art. Anything you want to add to that before I jump into my next question? I will say this, that it took me a long time to get to those core values because I always thought about some of them, but I could never articulate them. Um, And I will say this, I think um, (laughs) you can go into a lot of schools and you'll see posters on the wall and they have these great sayings that sound really good, but I used to start to analyze and say, okay, well, is that actually true, right? Like, so for example, you may see a poster in your school that says, education is the key to unlocking your future. And to me, I look at that and I've thought about it. I said, hmm, well, that sounds great. And that maybe motivates kids a little bit, but I don't think that's actually true because education (laughs) And there's a lot of other things that we, you know, just giving a kid a high school diploma doesn't guarantee. It helps a lot, but it doesn't guarantee that they're unlocking their future. And so uh, I've really tried, I've I've done actually an assessment in our school of all the posters and said, all right, we're going to take down all the posters that I don't believe are true. (laughs) And, uh, And so I've had some of those experiences over almost 20 years in education that uh, I really tried to live by the convictions of, okay, what's actually true? And that's what I'm going to do. That would be a very difficult thing to do with school posters. And part of the problem <laughs> that you and I have is because we're such reflective thinkers that we can often find the holes in those statements. It reminds me, I may have told you this before, Eric, or if I've said this to listeners, I apologize. But last week I was scrolling through social media and I was starting to get a little overwhelmed with how to put together everybody seems. And so I just sat down at lunch that day and I I wrote a series of of social media posts that I haven't shared out, but just things I want to say. One of them is, I don't have all the answers, but I bet together we can find solutions. Right. 
you know, so I think sometimes when we see these sayings that we place out for kids, they're, um, it's, it's part of the truth that they need to know, but not all the truth that they yes. need to know. So, so it's, I think that's such an important reflection. Well, I want to dive into two areas with you in yep. the time that we have remaining. One is about your dissertation and the other is about the book that you put together also for educators. But before I do that, yep. t- tell us a little bit more about Sedgefield Middle School and what are some things that you guys are celebrating in your work there? Yeah, um, Sedgefield Middle School is, uh, we are a school of a little over 500 students here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we are in uh, what's called the South End area of Charlotte. It's a growing immensely, um, and, and Charlotte as a city itself has, has grown significantly um, over the last 20 years, but we are a school that has undergone a significant student reassignment plan here, and uh, when I got here, um, in 2018, we were in the first year of it, and we were a, we are still a Title I school. We were a Title I school, but um, our population um, was was much had a much more high poverty concentration. Um, and what has happened is the reassignment plan has shifted some of our boundary lines to where we now have a lot of students that are still coming from high poverty homes, but then we also have families that are coming from um, some of the highest income homes in Charlotte. And so I would argue, and and this is not, I don't have the research to prove it, but that we have one of the most diverse student populations in the country in regards to the uh, income disparity that the the students are coming from, from their families. And so uh, as a result of that, and when you only have 500 students in a building, there's two things. One, there's been growing pains of students who have had to learn to coexist and collaborate with other students that don't maybe look like them or come from families like them. Um, and we also have had to, uh, but we also have the asset of having only 500 students. And so I'm able to know students Mm-hmm. I'm able to know families and know the needs a little bit different um, than other schools that maybe have, you know, 1,400 students in a middle school, which is pretty large for us in, in our area. Um, and so in light of that student reassignment plan, we've had to think about how do we strategically schedule students? How do we um, think about how we resolve conflict? How do we, again, dignify all stakeholders in giving each student what they need whether that's advanced classes or whether that's um, remedial classes that students may need. So some of those things that have happened, and and as a result of of that process, I can say right now, we are in a place where um, we have very little, um, I mean, you're always going to have conflict, but we do not have nearly the conflict from a few years ago. We don't have we have a, a student culture and population where students are sitting together, where I know that they come from very different backgrounds, but they're friends. And it's a beautiful thing to see some of the collaboration among the students and among the staff. There had to have been, there was a lot of trust building over the last several years, um, but we're in a really unique place. I will say too, um, we are working diligently to make our school just a little bit better every single year. So for instance, one of the things that I'm working on right now is 
uh, we do club time every Friday. And so I lead what's called the Men of Sedgefield Club. And in the Men of Sedgefield Club, I've got about 30 boys. And every Friday, I bring in a speaker from the community uh, who talks about growing into a mature young adult, and they share their experiences. And so these boys are getting experience from um, different men in our community. I also have these volunteers coming and being lunch buddies for our boys once a week and holding the door uh, in the mornings for them as they get out of their car. And so, um, and, the, and the purpose of that group is to model, instruct, and guide our, our boys uh, at Sedgefield Middle School. And, and that includes all of the boys, right? Um, for our girls, we're doing a program where we're helping them be apprentice, uh, do an apprenticeship for women in technology mm-hmm. along our South Boulevard corridor here in Charlotte. And so they're getting matched up with other women in the community that are involved in technology-related fields. Um, I had the opportunity to have a, a big pot of money over the summer that we needed to, to use or lose. Some of you school leaders know that. Um, and I used that money and I bought a whole bunch of equipment for a sensory lab. And so we're doing a sensory lab and brain base, a brain and body um, training for all of our teachers to help them, you know, help students who have maybe ADHD or really all of us who maybe have AD, undiagnosed ADD or ADHD. Um, and so there's just a lot of really neat things that are happening here at Sedgefield Middle School. And we're just always kind of tweaking it just a little bit to make the school experience excellent, not only for our teachers or for our students, but for our teachers. And and I will say this too, that we are, we're 100% fully staffed right now. And not every school in the country can say that. And not only fully staffed, but we've got incredible teachers who are true artists uh, in our building right now. Mm. Eric, thank you so much for sharing those celebrations happening at your school, because my brain is just spinning with all the great opportunities that you've described. And I know listeners at the end of the show, when I share your contact information would be, I'm sure, happy to connect and collaborate and ask questions about those too. Uh Friends, I want to take a quick break here to ask you a question. Did you know that leaders learn better together? When we isolate ourselves from the input and insight of others, then we work within the limitations of our own ideas and experience. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're listening to this podcast right now. It's also why I want to keep you informed of upcoming episodes, as well as leadership academies, mastermind offerings, or executive coaching opportunities I'm making available to leaders like you. Go to williamdparker.com and check out the services link to learn more. or visit my website and select the subscribe button to be on the weekly Principal Matters mailing list. Thank you so much for learning together. Now let's jump back into the rest of today's episode. I want to dig now into, it's interesting when you told the opening story about your parents and your birth in, was it Northern Africa? Uh, Um, Western, West Africa. In West Africa. Yeah. And your parents uh, being missionaries. And then when you worked on your doctorate uh, of education leadership, yeah. you did your dissertation on faith-based partnerships. And so you lead in a public school, and yet mm-hmm. you have found this to be a topic that you were committed enough to, to do your research on it. So can you share some of the findings that you have found yeah. and the benefits in school practice in partnering with faith-based organizations? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's a great question. I love to talk about it. You know, when I was thinking about writing my dissertation, I thought about all these different ideas of what I could write about. But then I thought, you know, there's two things that I want to do my dissertation on, the two criteria. And that one is I want to get it done. I want to finish it. Right. Uh, and two, I want to do something that I'm really interested in. And as I really began to work, I worked at um, uh, Garinger High School here in Charlotte previous to my pre to this position. And Garinger High School is a Title I school. You have 95% of your students are on free and reduced lunch. Um, and I loved it. It was rewarding. And it was, uh, but it was also very challenging. And what I began to see is that in places like that, you have folks that are maybe trying to, to give programs or throw money at things and and some of those things are wonderful and some of them work, but uh, I, I recognize that you can't just throw money at a problem and hope that it goes away. You really have to have people that care about it and are willing to do the work. And I saw that the folks that really cared in our communities are the people that are involved in faith-based organizations. And so I began to explore the impact that was happening specifically at another middle school here in Charlotte um, and an organization called F3 that I'm, I'm a part of. And so F3 was doing uh, is a faith-based organization that is um, helping students in an after-school tutoring program at this other middle school. And so I looked at, okay, what are some of the perspectives of those that are doing the tutoring and what's the perspective of those that are receiving the tutoring and the impact that the the teachers feel like the partnership is having on the school and what I found was that there was a unique care from those involved in faith-based organizations that is different than those that are not involved in faith-based organizations do other folks care do government entities care absolutely but when you begin to look at the scriptures or the texts of any religion, uh, major religion, you're looking at there's there's something there that is theologically that is motivating folks to serve in a unique way. And so that right there um, is a different type of motivation than those that are simply just given money to fix a problem. Um, and so I really do believe that faith-based organizations have, one, a different motivation, but then also, two, there's a unique strategic network when you're looking at a church and folks that are looking to mobilize to help uh, somebody in need or to alleviate poverty. And so there's, there's unique resources coming from faith-based organizations that can meet the needs of students in our schools um, and that schools really need to leverage those relationships um, because they can really impact students. And so, you know, one of the ways that work looks for me here at Sedgefield Middle School is I, I recruit folks from local churches to come and be lunch buddies because I know that they have a desire to serve the community and so I say, hey, come on into the school. You could be a lunch buddy or, hey, you could come hold doors in the morning on Friday morning. That's a way you can live out your faith um, in our community practically. Now, that then is the last point that I found and probably the most important is that when you have a relationship with a faith-based organization in any school, it is so important that you create the structures 
for people to actually have something to do. And so I think a lot of times the go-to for schools is, well, we'll just have them come in and be tutors. But what I found is that not everybody wants to be a tutor and not everybody can solve the math problems. Like, I don't think I would be a very good math tutor, even for my own elementary school aged kids, right? Because I don't like math and I don't necessarily love to tutor. But, um, you know, there are a lot of folks that are willing to come in and meet with a kid for lunch for 20 to 30 minutes and ask him a bunch of questions. There are a lot of community members who are part of a faith-based organization that are willing to come hold a door for 15 minutes in the morning and say good morning to kids as they walk in. And so trying to be creative with ways that, oh, this is something that needs to get done anyways. Why don't we plug in our members from the local church to come and do this for us? And so that was a major finding for me and something I recommend for any school leader is create the structures of things and make sure people know what they're to do. And it takes a little bit of work on the front end, but once you kind of get it going, um, things can move pretty well without you. That is so fascinating. I want to say a couple of things. One, what I don't hear you saying. And then two, uh, I want to repeat some things that I think were important. First of all, you're not saying that people outside of religious institutions aren't caring and don't have compassion for students because all of us work with people in our communities, both in faith-based and outside of faith-based organizations that love and care for kids, including our teachers. Um, Some of them are in faith-based organizations and some of them are not. But what you've identified is organizations within your community who can mobilize quickly, who, um, who are prompted and often motivated by the care and the dignity that they have for their neighbors and who sometimes are eager to serve and just looking for a place to do that. And so you've been able to use them as lunch buddies. You've been able to pull them in. I, I can remember in my experience how our faith-based communities, when I was leading high school, would do um, facility improvements. They would volunteer to come up and help paint walls. They would show up, like you said, sometimes to, to be lunch buddies for kids who might have just wanted another adult who they could connect with from the community. Um, there's They would often volunteer for us when we needed test monitors to come up on testing dates. And so, man, what, and, and, and you're right. You can often call one person and mobilize a lot of people um, by leveraging those, those community uh, relationships. Um, anything else you want to add to that? Cause I do want to finish this conversation by diving a little bit into the, the content from your book. Yeah, no, I, well, one last thing I'll say about the, the relationships. I'm really thinking a lot lately about how important um, just high, the word high dosage for me is important. Um, there's a guy named Roland Fryer. He's out of Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he did a whole study about how important just high dosage interactions are. And so I've been trying to kind of cultivate some of those relationships. And that's where lunch buddies coming in once a week. Um, and, you know, can't like campus beautification days and things like that are great. But I want the kids to be able to have a, a relationship that goes on and on and on, and that there's really a high dosage of interaction with somebody that's going to help impart maturity and study skills and um, focus and student engagement and those and life skills. So um, that's just kind of one thing. And I think if I were to rewrite my dissertation, I would maybe focus a little bit on the impact of that Um the, the high dosage interactions that kids have with adults. That is so powerful. Well, I know that we're um, 
going to be wrapping this conversation up pretty quickly, Eric, but I, I do want to go here because I know that all of the conversations that we have is what motivated you in the creating of, of your book, which has a pretty ominous title, The, the Crumbling <laughs> Schoolhouse, A Candid View of American Education. Yeah. It, but you wrote this as a practicing educator. of Look, there are some things crumbling around us. How do we address this? And you've already shared so many wonderful ways that your school community has found solutions to helping students grow both academically, but also as community members. But let's, let's, let's finish up with that conversation. What motivated you to, to write that book? And what are some of the places where you landed in, in sharing that content to help educators grapple with the fact that this is not an easy work that we're doing? Yeah. Well, I think that I, I kind of got to a point uh, prior to COVID and our school shutdowns where I had articulated my core values. I had reflected plenty about how I feel school should be. I had written my dissertation um, and I was far enough away from my dissertation where I was kind of having an itch to, to write some more, but I didn't know what I was going to write. But I had also written all these other things, journals or papers or things like that. So it's so I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but, you know, COVID gave me the gift of time. And during that time, I was able to cobble all of that together. And I began to really process and write about what I viewed was happening in public education in our country. And so I wrote this book. It's called The Crumbling Schoolhouse, A Candid View of American Education. And there, you were not the only one, Will, who said, are you sure? That's quite a title. And uh, one of my friends said, are you sure you should you should say that? And I said, well, yes, for now, you know, there's going to be another book uh, in a couple of years, I hope. And, and it's going to hopefully be more redeeming um, than that. But, you know, in the book, what I do is I break down these different topics that have happened and are affecting public education. Um, so, for example, recruiting and retaining teachers, um, citizenship. Um, the hidden politics of our curriculum, um, issues like sexuality in our schools, um, things that are, you know, faith-based organizations and the impacts that they can have. And, and I really tried to take each of these topics and lay them open and say, hey, these are the things that are happening these are the stories. I interject a lot of stories like uh, Mr. Dayton or the, or the students that I've tried to dignify or I've been unsuccessful at dignifying or, you know, there's plenty of my mistakes uh, that I've shared too in the book uh, and learned from. But I try to lay bare some of these issues and then to really ask the question, okay, well, if this is the current state, what are we going to do to move forward? And so after, at the end of each chapter, there is a series of questions that you can ask. Um, and that's whether you're in a group uh, of teachers that want to do a book study, or if it's a group of neighbors or school administrators, um, but to just kind of get the wheels turning and then to think, okay, this is where we are. This is how we're going to think about it. And then this is what we're going to do to move forward. Um, one of the things that I do grieve a little bit, Will, at this time is that before COVID, we were at a certain place and then COVID opened up some things and we've really in many ways gone right back to pre-COVID in so many ways. And I do wish that some of our structures 
would have maybe changed um, and we would have been more innovative collectively as as education as a whole. But um, this book helps to try to maybe move that needle just a little bit and to say, okay, what can we do to be a little more innovative? What can we do in light of all the information and knowledge that we have about um, our education system? Um, what can we do to move forward? Wow. Well, Eric Tornfeld, I want to just say right now to principal managers, listeners, you guys just got a, a, a healthy what do you call that? A high dosage interaction with <laughs> with my friend Eric, and a very brief intro to to whet your appetite for his book, The Crumbling Schoolhouse: A Candid View of American Education, which you can find on Amazon. And Eric, as we wrap up this conversation, I just want to thank you for bringing it full circle. You you talked about at the very beginning of this conversation your interactions with Mr. Dayton. And then at the end, about the the honest reflections that you have on where we still need to go as public educators. You've given your life's career to this, and you're leading in a school right now, and yet you realize that all educators are struggling with recruiting and retaining teachers and curriculum and helping students understand their place in our communities and, and how we should be restructuring before and after COVID. And so, um, so Principal Manders listeners, I, I want to encourage you to stay connected with Eric. How can folks stay connected with you, Eric? And what's a parting word of advice you'd like to give listeners? Uh, yes, I think one, you can you can stay connected with me on Twitter at, at, at Dr. Tornfelt. And you can uh, email me as well at etornfelt at gmail.com. Um, but I, you know, as, as we end our time today, Will, I think that the, the biggest encouragement I can give our, our school leaders right now is to really be um, to be be committed to the things that you feel are important and know your core values and continue to move towards that. I think a lot of school leaders try to do the things that they think their school district wants them to do, which aren't maybe maybe bad. I'm not, you know, they wouldn't be bad per se, but really um, I've, I've started to kind of pivot a little bit and say, you know, I'm going to be committed to the things that I think are important and I'm going to keep moving forward and I'm going to keep speaking truth to everyone that'll listen to me. Um, and then the school district's going to, you know, let them kind of deal with it, you know, not in a, in a negative way, but let them know that, wow, this guy or this girl is really living it out and doing what is important and they're leading with truth and they're leading with dignity. And, you know, that's the type of stuff that we need in our schools now. We need authentic people. We need people that are committed to being themselves and not being, you know, conformist. You know, we want to we want to be digni dignifying, but we don't want to necessarily be conformist and we want to be innovative. So um, those are just some of my parting words. But, Will, what a pleasure to be on this podcast. I mean, it, this is really like a, a, a dream come true in many ways. So thank you again. Well, Eric, thank you. And as we wrap up Principal Matters listeners, I want to thank you for, for listening to this candid conversation as Eric has talked about his values, his motivations. And Eric, I just feel like as you're wrapping up, uh, spoken like the true son of a missionary couple, as you are leading with such a heart of care and compassion and mission for your school community, you are in the right place at the right time. And Principal Matters listeners, you are too. And so as you listen to this conversation, I just want to encourage you to reach back to Eric 
um, at his Twitter address or his email, which we'll put in the show notes. And if you've got questions or feedback, or you would love to connect with me, you can always reach out to me at my website at will, will uh, my email address, will at williamdparker.com, or just go to the website, williamdparker.com, and you can find the contact information there. If you are interested in connecting with me about any of the programs that are offered through Principal Matters, the learning academies, the mastermind impacts, I'm already building my schedule for 2324, believe it or not. And I'd love to connect with leaders who want to connect with any of that work that I place on my calendar a year in advance when I can. So, um, so please reach out. Until next time, thanks for doing what matters, and we'll talk to you soon. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com. Check out the services link on williamdparker.com to learn more about leadership academies, mastermind offerings, and executive coaching. If you're planning professional development for the year ahead, or you're looking for keynote presentations from any of my books, please email me at will at williamdparker.com. Thank you for learning together today. And thanks again for doing what matters.